Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. I had been so deep in what I call the I'll be happy when syndrome of like, once I get on Broadway, then I will be happy. Once I get on Broadway, then I will be happy. And I was just like single focus. This is the dream. This is where the pot of gold lives. And then I get my Broadway debut. It's 42nd Street, which if you've ever seen the show, I mean, it's just like Broadway. I mean, it is gold and stairs and tap shoes and lights. It is as Broadway as it gets. And three weeks later, I remember just like having a full breakdown in my kitchen because I didn't know what to work towards. Like, I was like, what's next? I had been working so hard I mean, since I was eight years old to get to this thing. And then I got the thing, but I didn't know what to work towards. And so I felt a little lost. And now you're only doing a show two and a half hours a day. So it's like, what do you do with the rest of your time and day? I just felt a little lost. And so I learned at a pretty young age that I was more interested in the happiness of pursuit than I was the pursuit of happiness. I didn't really get that at the time. I went a few more years of next job, next boyfriend, next zero. But if I look back, that was the first, oh, your happiness really doesn't come on the other side of any person, place or thing. Hey, it's Light Watkins. We are back with another episode from the end of the tunnel. And if this is your first time listening to the show, here is what you are in for. I interview luminaries, artists, philanthropists, athletes, creatives, and basically anyone who has gone above and beyond to be the change that they wish to see in the world. Sometimes they start movements or they create films or they write books that inspire people And my guest this week is an author, she's a meditation guru, and she is the founder of Ziva Meditation. She's my dear friend and colleague, Emily Fletcher. So Emily grew up in Florida, she was raised Southern Baptist, and from a very early age, she had aspirations to perform on Broadway. Her mom enrolled her into a young actor's theater, where she honed her skills over the next decade. And then after she graduated university, she moved to New York City and she landed a job pretty much right away on Broadway. There, her dream came true. She ended up performing on Broadway in various shows pretty much nonstop over those next 10 years. So for all intents and purposes, Emily was living her passion. However, she now describes that time in her life as the saddest that she's ever been. She was stressed. She was racked with anxiety. She started going gray at 26 years old. And the craziest part about it is she didn't even understand why. And then one of her fellow actors told her about how much she had benefited from her meditation practice. This landed just right for Emily. So she decided to give meditation a try. And just like she knew that she was meant to be on Broadway, Emily got so much from meditation 
that she felt deep down that she was meant to be more than just a meditation practitioner. So Emily pursued more in-depth training and then she began teaching meditation as a side gig. Then she felt called to retire from Broadway to give up her dream and become a full-time meditation teacher. And later, Emily went on to create one of the most impactful meditation studios and brands in the world called Ziva Meditation, which has in-person as well as online options for learning how to meditate and getting support. She also wrote a best-selling meditation book called Stress Less, Accomplish More, and she's now got meditation courses for children, and she gives talks and workshops around the world. Emily has also been a dear friend of mine for many years. We actually got trained in the same meditation tradition, and I've always looked up to her for her ability to make meditation so accessible for people without compromising on the quality, which is a skill in and of itself. So I'm excited for y'all to hear yet another example of someone who had supposedly found their calling, but then when they realized that it was just a launch pad to something completely different, they had to take another leap of faith in the direction of the unknown. So we're going to hear what that process was like for Emily. But before we get into our conversation, I do have a quick question for you. Have you ever meditated for 108 days in a row? If not, are you up for the challenge? Because if you are, then you're invited to join my 108-day meditation challenge. The 108-day challenge is a part of my Happiness Insiders online community, which teaches you practices like meditation, obviously, for increasing happiness within. The way it works is you pay a $39 entry fee, and that gives you access to a seven-day meditation kickstart, which will teach you everything you need to meditate without guidance for at least 10 minutes a day. And then you'll get daily prompts and accountability to help support you in your 108-day meditation challenge. And by the end, not only will you become a daily meditator, but you'll also be a part of a larger community of other meditators. It's kind of like running a marathon with other meditators cheering you each step of the way. And the best part is once you cross the finish line, your $39 entry fee will be credited back to you. We've got hundreds of people who've successfully gone through the challenge And it's designed to help you accomplish what feels like a marathon to many people, which is finally becoming a daily meditator. To get more information, just go to thehappinessinsiders.com and let me help you take your inner practices to the next level. And now let's dive into Emily Fletcher's backstory and find out how she found her true purpose. Emily, welcome to At the End of the Tunnel. It's an honor. It's a pleasure having you as not only a colleague, but just a longtime friend on the show and getting an opportunity to dive into your fascinating backstory as someone who's kind of had a parallel trajectory. Not that I was on Broadway, but both of us kind of took a leap of faith out of one thing into another thing. And now our mission is to help the world be excited and unstress and all that good stuff and accomplish more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> unstress and accomplish more. A little less yeah. sketchy, but. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy good. to see your face. I know. You're one of those people that whenever I get a chance to talk to you, connect with you, I think because we have such a shared past, it just makes me smile 
inside and out. Yeah, it really feels like, I know that you and our mutual friend, Will, were like brothers, but there does feel there's a bit of a sibling quality to our relationship, which I really Mm -hmm. enjoy. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and it's so deeply intertwined. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I never want to take you for granted. You know, it's like there's not that many people that have so many overlaps and have been through so many chapters together. Yeah. And it's really cool. And, that we've, also, and even that we've been doing things like similar things, but in parallel paths. And, and so even if you didn't have a shared experience, it is shared in that we did a similar thing at a similar time. Yeah. And building a meditation practice and all the like sort of overlapping mutual friends and workshops and conferences and yeah, it's just like we have, there's so many threads of connection. And, and really, only you and I would know what that's like to do that. <laughs> you know, there's not many people we can talk to <laughs> yeah. about what it's like to, to take a leap of faith into becoming a meditation teacher before the popularity of meditation apps and, and whatnot. And yeah, I just like taught People out forget of that it wasn't cool 10 years ago. No. Mm-mm. Well, we that's had to right. make it cool. We had to make that's it right, cool. That's right. That was, we were the, that's right. That's what edge we of the were wedge. out there in the world doing. What's that guy? There's some guy who's like a kind of like get rich quick guy. And he's like, you can be a <laughs> nudist or you can be a Buddhist, but you can't be a nudist Buddhist. And this is like, he's saying like, you can do, you can be one kind of weird or another kind of weird, but you can't be weird on top of weird. And oh. back in 2010, online meditation courses was definitely nudist Buddhist right? It was Mm -hmm. like, you could be into meditation, weird, or you could do online courses, weird, but to do both was like, oh, too much, too much. Right, right. Well, also there's the subject of both of us kind of getting booted out of our meditation community. Oh yeah, that whole (laughs) thing. We got booted off the island. You know, what's so funny is I just had a conversation with a really dear friend of mine. I mean, like one, like inner circle friend of mine. And he called me and he was so upset because he was like on some retreat with like some other teachers. And he's like, I just don't understand. Like, why aren't you guys are all meditation teachers? And like, why is everyone not getting along? And and so I had to sort of give him, I think he just wanted some clarity and some truth. And because, you know, it's like when things don't make sense, they can feel weirdly traumatic. Like so if somebody, if you just understand the truth of something, or at least someone's truth of something, it feels a little settling and safer. Like for example, if you're a kid and your parents get divorced and don't tell you why or how or when or anything, and you're just left in total question marks, like that in and of itself can be traumatic. So right. and I was just sitting him down and I mean, just sharing my side of the story. But well, I think I, it ended up being a blessing in disguise for both of us. I'm a big fan of Robert Greene. Do you know who, who he is? He's an mm-hmm. author. He wrote The 48 Laws of Power, The Art of Seduction, The 33 Strategies of War, Mastery, Human Nature, Laws of Human Nature. And he talks a lot about human nature and behavioral psychology. And one of the things he talks about, especially in his book, Mastery, is in order to truly come into your own level of mastery, you have to break with your master. You have to get out of the apprentice role and step into the role of the teacher. And so... Yeah. I feel like we were indirectly encouraged to do that. And I think yeah. that we're better for it. We're better teachers for it. Because when you have no one else to kind of get validation from, you have to kind of really own what you're doing. And and I think it makes you a little bit more prudent and more 
aware of the impact that you're having by the choices you're making. At least that was my experience. And you have to trust yourself more. Like if you have no one to defer the decision to, you have to really rely on that inner guidance. And that was the thing I was trying to tell my friend. I was like, this has been going on since the beginning of time. It's it's teacher and student and teacher and student and teacher and student. And that's the way it goes. And and where I sit now, it's like, I'm so, so grateful Mm -hmm. to have such a nurturing, rich, intelligent nest and I am so grateful that I learned how to fly. You know, it's yeah, and it happened yeah. to our teacher. Same thing happened with him, and the same thing happened with his teacher, right? Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just it's, it's all. This I can't wait to kick some people out of my nest. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> the hell out of here! I don't ever want to see you again. I'll be gentle. I'll be gentle. <laughs> Anyways, I wanted to start the conversation off, or maybe redirect the conversation to little Emily. What did they call you when you were growing up? Emmy, Emily. I've never been Emmy. I've always been Emily. When I was in college, people called me Miss 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 because I was Miss 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 because I was Florida's junior Miss. And then people were like, no, I think she's Miss Florida. No, she's like Miss Florida's junior Miss. And then they were just just like whatever, Miss Miss Miss. And they were just making fun of the fact that I was I was not a pageant queen. I was a scholarship program winner. <laughs> <laughs> But I was little, little. Oh, I have a photo of little Emily right here on my desk. Oh, that little long baby. little hair. So cute. What are you eating there? Cereal. Soup? Cereal. cereal. Uh-huh. Before school. <laughs> Every morning. Lucky Charms. Cheerios. I mean, just sugar right. cereals for days. Right. How we didn't all end up with tooth decay and severe. We eating. used to put sugar in our Lucky Charms and like Frosted on the Frosted Because it wasn't yeah. sweet enough. Yeah, it wasn't sweet yep. enough. And then drink the sugary milk at the end. Delicious. The chocolate <laughs> milk from the Cocoa Puffs. Come on. We're in Tallahassee, Florida. Yep. It's huge. You're, you have an older sister. I know your yes. mom was around. I think your parents were together, right? They, At that yeah, time they, when you were a kid, when you were They little. stayed married, yeah, until my dad died. Set the scene. What is it like growing up in a Southern Baptist household? I love all uh, your what, research. What was your favorite toy or activity back then? Oh, man. Okay. So what a lot of people, when you hear Florida, they think Florida, but what people need to know is that Tallahassee is much more like Florabama. That's the other thing uh-huh. we have in common is that like you're from they Alabama. They call it the Redneck Riviera. Where you guys That's rednecks. right. Redneck Riviera. But I wasn't quite Riviera because I wasn't on the beach. Uh-huh. We were an hour and a half from the beach, seven minutes from the Georgia line. You know, I was like singing the national anthem at the opening of the Super Walmart. I was going to keg parties in the parking lot of Walmart, like doing keg stands on that light. I was going to Florida State football games and pretending to be a cheerleader when I was a little girl. I started a place called Young Actors Theater when I was in fourth grade. And I knew very young, like I was reading a newspaper on the floor of my mom's bathroom. She was in the shower and I saw an ad for this place called Young Actors Theater. And I was like, oh, mom, I'm going to need to go there. I'm going to be an actress. And it was like the second that I knew there was like a place, everything in my body was like, yep, that's it. And so this beautiful studio started by this woman named Tina Williams, where you could go after school and do voice and dance and acting and do shows and that really became my home. I mean, it was like my spiritual home, like the, my creative home. Like some people have their sports teams. I had this theatrical community and I, I went there from fourth grade until 12th grade. And then there was a, a group of us that were there and then also doing shows at our high school. So we would do four shows a year at Young Actors and then two shows a year at my high school. So that's six shows a year you're rehearsing for and performing for. So it was, it was pretty full out and so fun. 
So I have a question. Before you were on your mom's bathroom floor reading that paper, were you doing any kind of performing or singing? I mean, my mom dancing? always likes to say I was like always in the mirror, like performing for myself in the mirror. But other than that, with the no. hairbrush. Yeah, hairbrush, sunglasses, curling iron, like really like, and every time I would cry, even since I was little, if I would cry, I would like imagine myself in an Oscar award-winning film. I'd be like, oh, like, (laughs) it was sort of like an interesting observer type. Like I wasn't fully in the experience. I was sort of watching the experience and a little bit entertained by the experience, which was interesting. I read that your parents took you to a Broadway show and that's where you said you got kind of hooked. Was that before fourth grade or was that after? That was the year grade? after. So I started Young Actors in fourth grade and then my parents took me to New York City when I was 12, when I was in fifth grade. And we saw Phantom of the Opera, Les Mis and Aspects of Love. And I remember being in Aspects of Love as a little known Andrew Lloyd Webber show. And I'm sitting in between my dad, who is snoring, and another man who is snoring. Meanwhile, I am having a religious experience. And I'm like, wake the up. I was just so mad at them for sleeping through like basically me recognizing God for the first time. Mm. And afterwards, I was like, yeah, this is it. Like, I'm going to live here. I don't know how or when, but I felt much more at home in New York City than I ever did in Tallahassee, Florida. I always felt like an alien there. What was it about performing as a young person that made you feel so alive? Was it getting validation from an audience? Was it getting a chance to express things you couldn't do in your normal life? What was it? Do you remember? I remember very clearly when I was in uh, ninth grade, my first high school production We did Guys and Dolls and the show we were sucking, like we were not doing a good job. And the director choreographer did this exercise and they said, okay, we're going to close the curtain and we want you to do the opening number, but the curtain is going to be down. So we won't Hmm. be able to see you. We won't be able to see your dances or your costumes or the set. So you have to communicate the story with only sound. And we, like the articulation, the energy through our voice, the clarity of the storytelling got so much better with the curtain down. And then they said, okay, now we're going to bring the curtain up and we're going to do it. We're going to play the music, but you can't sing. You have to communicate everything silently. And then the physicalizations got so specific and the physical storytelling got so dramatic and precise. And I, just that one exercise, I was like, this is it. Like, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. Even their creativity and getting us to be better. And then what changed in our bodies was with telling stories in these new, unique ways. That was one thing I fell in love with. But really, for me, it was the community. It was this group of creative people that were coming together to work towards this goal that was greater than any of us. That was the drug for me. That was what was so intoxicating to me. And I always loved being in the ensemble. Like I love singing in the choir. I love singing in chorus. Because that to me is also like direct path to God. Like many people's voices coming into coherence with each other. It's a similar phenomenon as what happens in a group meditation where it's like your, your cells just start to vibrate similarly. And that was a thing that I really, really loved. Were you a gifted natural singer or do you have to learn how to sing? I've always hated singing. 
I mean, until recently, like learning business, I've probably worked harder on singing than I did anything else. Like I started professional voice lessons when I was in fourth grade, maybe. No, that's a lie. Maybe sixth grade. But I went once, twice a week, every week until I was maybe 30. I mean, so paying someone $100, $150 a week, doing vocal warmups, recording the things, listening back, like, I mean, just constantly working on my voice because I was so insecure about it. And I I hated every audition, every time I sang on Broadway, it just, it like shook me to my core. What were some of the lessons or ideologies or mantras that you remember your parents saying to you and your sister when you all were coming up about life or about the world or what to look out for and things like that? There weren't too many. Like my mom doesn't really teach. Well, there's a few. Here's a few catchphrases. <laughs> my dad gave me a good one. And he said, work so hard that people will pay to see your worst day. And like mm-hmm. that stuck with me. And I think that that's true to some degree now. You know, I could really just be PMSing and tired and over it and not prepared and like still get up and, and rock people's socks to some degree, you know, and because it's, it's a muscle that's been so like the ability mm-hmm. to channel and the ability to tune into an audience that's there now, like no amount of bad day can take that away from me at this point. And I think I got there to some degree on Broadway, like maybe not like I'm not filling my own Carnegie hall audience, but certainly like I could be, hungover, just gone through a breakup and it's Sunday morning at 11 a.m. and I could still give a Broadway performance for sure. So that was one for my dad. My mom, one of my favorites from her was a lady never has to say she is. Mm. (laughs) What's the subtext there? Well, just like be a lady and don't have to say you're a lady. Like, 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 Is she super religious, like get married before you have sex or any of that kind of stuff? I don't know that it was around like sexuality per se, but I think it was more like who you are speaks much louder than who you say you are. Mm. And whatever you are should be so obvious that you shouldn't have to tell people that you are that thing. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, You get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. 
That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is happy. All right, back to the episode. How are you thinking about success while you were doing these shows in high school, these $30,000, $40,000 musicals, which is crazy. <laughs> were you thinking of it in terms of like, I'm going to get an Oscar one day, or I just want to be on Broadway. I don't care what happens after that. Like what was happiness? What did that look like if you projected ahead 10 years in your life? Once I was in high school, then it was clear that like, I'm going to major in this in college. I'm going to go to New York. I want to do Broadway. I think that was clear. So that was for me, success at about 14. But if I run, if I wind the tape way back to like little girl, I knew I was going to be an actress and I knew I wasn't going to stay an actress. I was like, this is going to be important and I need to do it. And it's going to lead to something else. And the something else felt like helping women. Like, I didn't really know what, I certainly didn't know what meditation was at that time, but I could see myself like speaking on stages, not performing on stages. I could see myself like taking the stage with a podium and speaking to a room of like a thousand women. And that's as early as like four or five, I could see that. And then there was moments where I left Broadway in 2009-ish and I moved to LA for a short stint. And in that moment, I thought I would do TV and film. Like then I was like, I've done Broadway. I did it for 10 years. It was awesome. I want to do something else. And I was trying to figure out what that something else was. And at that point for maybe like a year, it was like, sure, I would love to be like a series regular on a TV show or something. You seem to be very focused. You seem to be hardworking. You seem to have an ability to assemble a good team. Was that a learned skill later in life? Or did you have all of those traits back when you were a teenager? Were you super focused in school? Were you? Yeah, I've always been super focused. I was a straight A student. I was in AP classes, whatever, magna cum laude. Like I like school. I like getting straight A's. I think really I like approval. <laughs> I am a people pleaser, which is, you know, a double-edged sword, but I like pleasing teachers. I like pleasing my parents. Like it was like, oh, what's the task? Great. I want to get a, a plus on whatever the task is. So that's always been fun for me. And I like learning. So it wasn't like I was disciplined per se, you know, like I enjoyed learning and I liked pleasing people. So it was enjoyable. And then, yes, I don't know if I was good at business when I was younger because all of my energy was going into voice and dance and acting. But then when you are an actor, you're running your own business and you're constantly marketing yourself to casting directors, but it's a constant game. So you have like the job, whatever you're doing on Broadway, but then you're simultaneously always auditioning for other things and building relationships with casting directors. So I think that those skills served me well when I started Ziva. But but entrepreneurship and team building and marketing, all of that was very, very much learned. And I owe so much to my ex-husband, Jason, who taught me so much about team building and prioritization and dependencies. And really just that it's a job. It's easy, I think, when people turn their hobbies into their career to think that you should enjoy 100% of it or that it's all sunshine and roses. And like, sure, maybe once you're enlightened, like even digging, you know, sewage out of a ditch is enjoyable, but I'm not there yet. And so it's just like accepting that like parts of this are a job and that's okay. There's parts of it that are pure ecstasy and there's parts of it that feel like a job and it's okay. When you went to New York at, I believe you were 22 years old or something like that, three weeks before 9-11, 
you apparently got this job during your second day. How is that possible? How did you get a job so quickly? My mom and I drove a van from Tallahassee, Florida to Queens, unpacked it. We got it at 2 a.m., unpacked stuff of a walk up. God bless where my were you, mom. Where was this? Was it some apartment you found on I was subleasing an apartment from one of the other folks. And I was a musical theater major. I got a BFA in musical theater at Florida State. And a graduate was like going on tour and they needed to sublease their apartment. And so I took over this lease in Queens, Astoria, Queens. And my mom drove me up, helped me unpack. And then literally the next day I'm looking in Backstage Magazine. I'm like, oh, there's an audition for Theater Works. And Theater Works was like the thing that you did to get your equity card. Because equity is the union you have to be in to get on Broadway. And so I'm not going to like, this is like day one. Like we got on a Tuesday. This is Wednesday. And I am in Chelsea Studios and I'm auditioning for this thing. It's called Theater Works. It pays $400 a week. And you load and unload the set yourself. You drive your own van from like school to school. I mean, just like a nightmare. Of a job. Oh yeah. I had a friend who did that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But a lot of people did it because it was the way you could get your equity card and then you could go to Broadway auditions. So mm-hmm. sort of just like a rite of passage. And so I'm in this lobby auditioning for this really shitty job. And then while I'm in the lobby, this casting director walks up to me and was like, Hey, have you read yet? And I said, for what? And she said, Scooby-Doo, to which I rolled my eyes. And I was like, no, thank you. <laughs> and I said, well, wait, what is it? And she said, well, it pays six, $600 a week. This is an upgrade from $400 a week. And it plays Radio City Music Hall. And you get your equity card. And it's six months. And do you want to read? And I was like, okay. Now it's their final day of final callback. So some of these people have been in this audition process for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I roll up my first day in New York City and read, and I ended up booking Daphne, which is, you know, like the redhead and the purple skirt, which obviously I also had like bright flaming red hair and I look like Daphne, like her eyes go up. So anyway, I got it and it was so fun. And I got my equity card, played Radio City, met my best friend who later officiated my wedding and also thankfully was employed when 9-11 happened which was a big deal because all of my friends that moved to New York city as unemployed actors, Broadway shut down, you know, like the only shows that could stay alive after nine 11 and the tourism decrease was like Phantom of the Opera and Les Mis. And so there was no new shows happening for years. Like it just slowed everything down. And the psychological weight of starting your career unemployed for two or three years is big. And so the fact that I was making money and getting to be in front of an audience, like it, it really helped me. It was just, an, it made things easier. Was this dumb luck? Did that producer ever come back to you after you got the job and say, hey, I saw you in the lobby and I thought you'd be perfect for the role? Like, why did she go up to you? Or was she going up to everybody who was just sitting around? No, I think it's because I look like Daphne. And also, it's not dumb luck. Like, there is, yes, I have, yes, the fact that- Because these are callbacks. That means these people were probably off book on the audition and everything. And you hadn't even- looked at the script yet. Correct. But also like I've been doing this stuff. I mean, remember I've been doing eight shows a year since I was in fourth grade. (laughs) Right. So I'm like, even though I'm not getting paid, like I've been doing this stuff, like it's my job for almost 10 years. If you stay ready, you ain't got to get ready. (laughs) That's right. That's right. And like, yeah, it was, it was like good fortune that this audition was happening and I happen to look like Daphne, but also I've been working my ass off since I was eight years old, but it was fun. And also like my energy and presence is a thing. Like I'm starting to realize that now of 
yes, meditation has helped, but I fill a room when I walk into it. People pay attention when I walk into a room. And so what I do with that energy and where I direct that energy is up to me, but the energy is going to come. And so in this case, it was like, well, do you want to read for Daphne? I was like, sure. You had described also experiencing one of the saddest moments or the saddest moment of your life around that time after having moved to New York. Your dream came true. You're on Broadway. And then what happens? I mean, I had been so deep in what I call the I'll be happy when syndrome of like, once I get on Broadway, then I will be happy. Once I get on Broadway, then I will be happy. And I was just like single focus. Like, this is the dream. This is where the pot of gold lives. And then I get my Broadway debut. It's 42nd Street, which if you've ever seen the show, I mean, it's just like Broadway. I mean, it is gold and stairs and tap shoes and lights. It is as Broadway as it gets. And three weeks later, I remember just like having a full breakdown in my kitchen because I didn't know what to work towards. I was like, what's next? I had been working so hard I mean, since I was eight years old to get to this thing. And then I got the thing but I didn't know what to work towards. And so I felt a little lost and now you're only doing a show two and a half hours a day. So it's like, what do you do with the rest of your time and day? I just felt a little lost. And so I learned at a pretty young age that I was more interested in the happiness of pursuit than I was the pursuit of happiness. I didn't really get that at the time. You know, I went a few more years of next job, next boyfriend, next zero, But if I look back, that was the first like, oh, your happiness really doesn't come on the other side of any person, place or thing. And I thank my lucky stars that I achieved what was at that point my lifelong goal at 22, because I very likely would have gone until 60. Like if I never got that thing, like if my goal was to make $3 million or something, and I didn't achieve that until I was 60, I could see myself white knuckling it and being so myopic and just really having bought into the I'll be happy when syndrome. And so I'm just thanking my lucky stars that I got the thing I was chasing so early so that I could look somewhere else for my happiness. Did you have a mentor at the time that kind of helped you understand this quest and how to kind of navigate it? No, I didn't have any spiritual mentors or acting mentors. I mean, I had great teachers when I was in college and you know, I had like great dance teachers or great music teachers and I had friends, but I always remember being curious about that. I was like, what's a mentor? How do you get a mentor? Who's a mentor? You know, like I, I always sort of felt jealous of that or like, like I didn't know where to get one. Was there someone whose career you were looking up towards or wanting to emulate? Mm-hmm. Laura Venanti. <laughs> Laura Benanti. Do you know her? Laura Benanti? No, I don't. No. She's amazing. She, we're the exact same age and uh-huh. we're similar types. And it's a funny story. She played Louise in Gypsy. And that was like my dream role. She had like this, she was on Broadway and she was on TV and always doing concerts. She's like Broadway's darling. And I was, I remember being so jealous of her because she had exactly my dream career. And then uh-huh. I saw her in this play called the vibrator play, I think. And she was so good that I couldn't be jealous of her anymore. I had to convert into being a fan. (laughs) And then a few months later, I did a private with a woman named Jenna Dewan. And 
Jenna was like, you have to meet my friend, Laura Bonanti. She's going to love you. And I was like, yes, please like connect wow. us. And so she text connects us. And then Laura ends up taking my meditation course, like the group class. I am fully starstruck. Like I can't even make sentences. <laughs> I can't believe that she's sitting in my class and we ended up becoming really good friends. But I think it was because I was able to make that shift from being jealous to celebrating her. And that helps when you're not doing the thing anymore. You know, when I had changed right. careers. You got to a point where you were having insomnia and anxiety and all of this, right? And getting sick a lot. What were you like, 26 years old or something like that? At 26 the time? or 27. It's a little fuzzy. I think I learned when I was 27, learned to meditate. Talk about that moment where you were first introduced to meditation. I believe you're in a dressing room or something like this. Yeah. So I was in a chorus line was the show. And my job was to understudy three roles. And it's hard to really describe what that's like for people who haven't done it. It's like, imagine having a stack of 180 note cards for Sheila and 180 note cards for Val and 180 note cards for Judy. And Sheila is her song is at the ballet, but in the big number, she starts on number four on the left foot three times. But Val, for that same song, starts on the right foot on number six, and she does it twice. And Judy starts on number seven, but she starts on both feet, and she does it eight times. So you're learning the exact same choreography, the exact same lyrics, but different foot, different position on stage, different dance partners. So it's a real jigsaw puzzle in your brain. And it's one of the hardest things that I think anyone could really ever do because it's like, it's holding the jigsaw puzzle is one thing, but then holding the jigsaw puzzle under extreme pressure with 3000 people watching you thrown on at a moment's notice and full-blown fight or flight is, is quite another <laughs> And some people are very good at this job. I am not one of them. I really love playing the same role over and over and over. I love massaging the nuance of it. I mean, it's why I can teach the same freaking meditation course for 10 years and not get sick of it. Like I, I love the nuance and like being shot out of a cannon and a totally different character was really jarring for my nervous system. <laughs> it led to a lot of anxiety and panic. So thankfully, there was this incredible woman named Dion. Did you ever meet Dion Zanotto? No. She's the one who introduced me to meditation. And like this woman, I know I've said this on every podcast, but it's, it's just like every song and every dance and every bite of food she ate was a celebration. She just had that spark, that joy that we're all drawn to. She inspired that worthy inquiry in me. And I was like, lady, what do you know that I don't know? And she said, I meditate. I rolled my eyes, didn't believe her. And then finally she said, my teacher's in town. Do you want to learn? I was like, yes. And so Michael Miller was actually, or maybe she had learned from Jillian, Michael Miller's partner. Mm -hmm. And then Michael was in town. And I think it was me and my boyfriend at the time, Colin Donnell, who's sort of a fancy pants TV actor now, and Robert Hammond and Jules Green. That's who was in wow. the room. I know you know like <laughs> all those people. <laughs> Okay. And I remember I was running late from something, but my boyfriend had gotten there soon and like saved me a seat. And I remember when Michael was, was this at Robert's house, was he teaching at it Robert's house? One at of, the time? It wasn't the West village one, but I think it was the one right before that maybe in okay. Chelsea, but I do think we okay. were at Robert's house and I never went there again after that initiation, but I went to the West village place a lot. And I remember when, when Michael was singing Pujo, which is like the initiation gratitude song, I just remember like everything in my body lighting up. 
and being like, whoa, whoa, like, yes, 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 yes. I felt like home. It felt like it was awakening, like a truly an initiation. And then I remember when he gave me my mantra and just being like, whoa, like, this is it. Like, this is home in this new way. And then that night I slept through the night for the first time in 18 months. And I had not slept And and I mean, I was having dreams about being possessed by the devil. Like that's what was going on in my sleep. And then that night I was like, just out. And then everything started getting better. The rest is history, as they say. You also had experience, you said your dad passed away a couple of years before that. So was that affecting any aspect of your life or your work at that time when you learned how to meditate? Or is that something that just kind of happened a couple of years ago when you were I mean, I was 24 and I was on tour with the producers and he got diagnosed with stage four liver cancer. And so I took a leave of absence to go home. And what I thought was to take care of him, but he ended up passing away two weeks after I got home. And I sort of in that time became a makeshift nutritionist and started like cancer nutritionist and started learning all this stuff about Ayurveda and health and all these things that now are so, so cool. But I was just learning them so my dad wouldn't die. But it was fascinating what we could do in just like 48 hours. And we started feeding his body and not the cancer. Because when I got home, he was basically in a coma and he was wanting sugar and meat, like his body, like the cancer wanted to grow. He was craving mm-hmm. lollipops and popsicles. My dad never ate that stuff and mm-hmm. cancer thrives on sugar. And so it was, he was just trying to feed the cancer. And we started doing all these crazy, like juices and supplements and everything, you name it. And then 48 hours later, he was talking and walking and up and down the stairs and in the backyard. And so that really woke something up in me as well. When I was like, Oh, like food is medicine and the body can heal itself. I mean, my dad in this case was too far gone. Like his tumor was 28 centimeters by the time it was diagnosed. But I could see that like, if we had caught this earlier, we fully could have reversed it. And so then I was like, well, maybe I'll go and become a naturopathic doctor or maybe like, so that really kicked up something in me, but I I continued to act. So that's when I started therapy at 24 after my dad died because I was, I was in a really tumultuous relationship. And I think I was taking that stuff out on my romantic partner and starting therapy was really significant. I started with this amazing man named Thomas Jones, and he has a style of therapy called paradox process. And it's so good. It's like speed therapy or like Mm -hmm. applied meditation. He invites you to lean into the emotional charge around something And then he asks you a bunch of questions and you're basically clearing the emotional charge so you can get to a place of objectivity. So you can get to a place of seeing the truth or your truth. And that was big, like starting to work with him. He was the most emotionally intelligent person I had ever met. And I still work with him. I took about 10 years off, but I've started back with him recently and he's so gifted And that was big because he was the person who introduced me to the secret and what the bleep do we know? And Joe Dispenza, you know, at 24, this is 18 years ago, I started studying manifesting and I started studying, you know, I had already read the Celestine prophecy, but it was like, it was a lot of breadcrumbs on this spiritual path. He opened a lot of those doors for me. And I think that had I not found meditation, I likely would have trained to be a therapist in his style because it was the thing that moved the needle the most for me until I found meditation. That was my gateway book to Celestine Prophecy. And it sounds like he was sort of that mentor role for you, your spiritual mentor in a way. for sure.
It was interesting because your course line tour, I guess you learned to meditate during a break and then it took you to Los Angeles, mm-hmm. which is where Michael Miller, your teacher, learned how to meditate with his teacher, our teacher. But yeah, you got a chance to kind of go a little deeper into the meditation community out there. Can you speak a little bit about those initial experiences? So our second city on tour was LA and I knew there was a bunch of meditation teachers there. So I just looked online and I found this group meditation. I like called them up and I was like, Hey, you guys doing one Wednesday? And they're like, yeah, come on over. And I show up, I drive all the way from downtown LA to Venice, which anyone who knows LA knows that's a long way. And I show up and it's just this one guy and his girlfriend. And I was like, um, this is not really the group meditation experience I was interested in. And they're like, no, come on in. It's fine. It was Christian. Is this Bacala. Bait? Okay. No, this is Christian. Okay. And, him and Teresa? Um, him and Teresa. And okay. so I go in and I'm like, I have my purse on my lap. I'm crossing my arms <laughs> through my purse. I'm meditating with one eye open. I'm like, are these people going to be weirdos or take advantage of me? But it was totally lovely. And then after the meditation, I open up my eyes and I see this beautiful Maybe it's a photo, maybe it's a painting. I don't really know what it is, but it's this bridge with a light at the end of it. And I said, what is that? And they said, oh, that's Rishikesh. I was like, what's a Rishikesh? And they're like, oh, that's this town in India. We do this retreat there every couple of years. Are you coming? I was like, no. I look back at the photo and I look at him and I said, yeah, I'm going to go. And cut to six months later, I'm in India, in Rishikesh at dawn, and we're going to do our group meditation on the Ganges and we're crossing. We were there at the same time, weren't we? I don't think we were there. I don't think you were there that year. Which year was this? Okay. Yeah. 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 I was there in 2007. Okay. Yeah. But I had read your article. I'd read one of your blog posts about your teacher training experience right. in India. And you talking right. about the monkeys and the call to prayer and the no hot water. <laughs> and I remember just feeling like I was being submerged in that experience and everything in my body was like, yes, 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 yes. I got to do this. But so I'm in this morning. So it's like dawn and we're crossing this bridge and I see this light at the end of it. And I stop in my tracks and I start sobbing, crying. And I know that the me in that moment had gone back to the me in Venice and said, you have to come here. You have to be a teacher. And it was just such a clear example of times folding in on itself. And when I went to India, it was just thought that I'm just deepening my own practice. I was going for my own personal study. And then when I was there, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to teach this. I just thought it would be way later. I thought it'd be when I was done acting and singing and dancing, but then nature had other plans. What was your impression of Christian and I's teacher? when you first met him, because he was the one that was facilitating that Rishikesh. Because at this point, you've met a few meditation teachers, and now you're meeting sort of like the Yoda of the meditation teachers. Did you have any sort of recognition with him as well? Trying to remember if that was my first interaction or if I had had others before then. I want to say I must have had others before then because I don't know that I would have signed up for a retreat mm. with someone that I didn't know. No, I mean, yeah, just the first, whenever you met him the first time. Yeah, I honestly, just, I can't remember. Uh-huh. I can't remember the first time. So maybe it was India. I mean, he sort of presents like God, you know what I mean? Like from our sort of like Caucasian, Anglicized, Judeo-Christian yeah. <laughs> like idea of this like bearded white man in the sky. And, uh-huh. you know, having grown up Southern Baptist with like white Jesus, which I'm just learning is a thing. And it played into the archetypes that I had grown up with as a child. Mm-hmm. So that resonated. But I mean, but more than that, I mean, I think he's a really, really gifted orator and one of the world's finest. I mean, other than Alan Watts, 
I don't know that I've found any other more gifted orator on the subject of consciousness. And I mean, there's really nothing that makes me more excited than someone's ability to articulate nourishing, <laughs> reuniting ideas about consciousness in flow state. Like that is my crack, right? I'm just like, give it, give it to me. Like I listened to Alan Watts on repeat. I've listened to your it maybe 18 times and I listened to it as I'm falling asleep. So I felt very grateful. And, and to me, it was not so much the person as it was the knowledge. The knowledge felt like coming home to me. It felt like, oh, I can't believe I ever managed to forget this. Was that also when you met Will the first time when you, when you attended that Rishikesh experience? Yes. Will and I met for the first time in Rishikesh and he had already been ousted, I think. So he was already like the bad boy of the meditation community. And he's just this like hot Australian dude kind of like lurking in the back. And I'm like, who's that? And then I remember this one morning we're all meditating on the banks of the Ganges and I open up my eyes and he's just like climbing out of the water, like Adonis <laughs> with his like speedo. I think they just like swum across the Ganges river. And I was all like a Twitter. I'm like, Oh my God, who is this man with his hot Australian accent? And then we talked a little bit, but then a few months later I moved to Los Angeles and then we ran into each other at a meditation event and that's where we reconnected. It was really in LA. Talk about your transition into becoming a meditation teacher with Will. I'm in LA, ostensibly there. Like I thought I moved there to pursue TV and film. But again, like my second day there, I run into Will. And he's like, hey, let's go have lunch. And I was like, great. And I didn't really know that many people. And so he came to me and he was like, He's like, I have this voice inside my head and it keeps saying, act, act, act. He's like, but I don't know if I'm any good. Um, I'm wondering if you'd be willing to train me like privately because I don't really want to take acting classes because I will have likely taught a lot of those people to meditate. Like Will was pretty well known as a meditation teacher in LA, certainly in acting circles at that time. And so he's like, would you be willing to do private lessons? And I was like, sure. And so we started doing privates a few times a week and then it was a few months in where he mentioned that he was training someone to be a meditation teacher. And I was like, oh, wait, what? Because I thought you had to go to India and you had to be there for years and years. Mm -hmm. And so the second he said that, like everything in me was like, yes, 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 yes. I want to start. And so I went home and I called my boyfriend at the time. I called my mom. And then I started the next day. Just for context, it's a that's a big commitment. That'd be like starting grad school <laughs> with one day notice. And I was just like, yeah, let's go. So Will was training myself and one other woman, Dominique. And we had such a beautiful like trio. And looking back on that, just thinking like the time and energy and attention that he gave to us, like especially when it's just two of us. Like I now in retrospect and in hindsight can see how much love and dedication to this practice he had. Cause like financially that was not a good move for him. Like in my mind, I'm like, Oh my God, I'm paying him so much money and he's making so much money. You know, it was, I think he made like $40,000 for the year of basically 24 hour a day mentorship to the two of us. <laughs> and so in hindsight, I just realized like how much dedication he had to the practice and to the teachings. And I, and I was so grateful to have learned from him. 
And I would say that then he became a mentor to me. Like I, w- I very much apprenticed him. I helped, I set up his puja table and took his fruit and flowers and really helped facilitate many dozens, if not hundreds of his courses. You mentioned something about Will. You said he had this thought about acting. He wanted to do something about that. And, and I think one of the tenets of our meditation community is you, if you have a thought about doing something and that thought seems unambiguous, then that's a sign from nature that you should take it very seriously. You seem to have a very healthy relationship with your own intuition. And I'm wondering at this time in your life, is that something that you are recognizing for yourself? That if I feel a certain way, if I light up around a certain idea, then I know I have to do it. Or are you still kind of thinking about it and going back and forth and postponing and dragging your feet and all of that? Probably both. And I think that oftentimes my ability to follow charm, certainly earlier in my life was based on naivete and arrogance. I am pretty arrogant when it comes to what I think I can accomplish. You know, I'm just like, (laughs) oh yeah, like, yeah, I'll do that. I think I assume that something will be easy for me. And so I just do it. And then I like learn along the way how complicated and challenging and hard it is. But when I start, there's a healthy level of ignorance, which is likely what allows me to follow charm. And so I think it was actually easier for me when I was more ignorant about logistics and things. Like now I sort of have more of a logistical mind. And that oftentimes I think stops me from following charm. I have to really like lean into my spiritual practice to be like, Emily, this is unambiguous. Like for example, right now I am getting unambiguous cues from nature that are saying Tantra for teens, Tantra for teens. And I'm like, (laughs) no, for the love of all things, holy, please no. But it feels pretty clear. Well, so clear, the meditation teaching thing, at least you were so clear about it that one day you just called your agents and told them you were piecing out. What was that day like? Well, I'm, I want to be real honest about this. Actually, as I'm playing that tape back in my head, I think that they fired me. So here's the real story. So there was like a time, I think this is 2013, where mm-hmm. I am teaching acting. So I've opened up the East Coast Division of the number one acting school in LA because I, I, I moved back to New York. So I did my teacher training with Will. It was about a year And then I moved back to New York to be with my then boyfriend, now ex-husband. And so I opened up this acting school called Anthony Mindel's Actor Workshop. So I'm auditioning. I'm in final callbacks to play Velma in Chicago on Broadway. I'm training four people to be acting teachers at this studio. And I'm launching what was at this point, the world's first online meditation training. So just before Headspace, just before Oprah Chopra, I think just before yours and Johnny's, like it was just a few months ahead of, of all of that. And so the point of the story is that it, at least to my mind, it hadn't been done before and it was a big experiment and it took an extraordinary amount of like technological know-how that I did not have. And so I was doing these three really hard things at the same time, and I wasn't really winning at any of them. And so it felt clear that something had to give, something had to go. And I was loving teaching meditation. I was loving birthing this online thing. I was loving teaching acting, but my agents would be like, Hey, can we get a headshot and resume? And it would take me like four months to bring them headshots and resumes. That's back when they were paper. (laughs) 
And so, and then when my contract was up, they were like, Hey, Emily, it seems that your heart is not in this anymore. And I was like, you're right. So we like mutually decided, but it, the way I tell the story anecdotally sounds a little bit like I was like, I'm out of here when really they were like, you've already quit. And I was like, you're right. How did you come up with the name Ziba? Was that something that just occurred to you in the shower one day or do you have a whole list of options? So that was also Jason because I was doing my teacher training in LA. We were dating long distance and I was wanting to start a website and start the company even before I graduated. And I was like deciding on a name. And I remember I was looking at like absolute meditation because we're like absolute vodka ads. I was also working in a (laughs) vodka tasting freezer to pay my way through meditation teacher training. So all kinds of ideas. And he said, you should just make up a name. And I was like, no. And he's like, yeah, just make up a name. He's like, Yahoo, Google, Akamai, like, look at all these companies. There's made up names. I was like, that doesn't feel right. I'm just like a random sound for my company. And so I was in a meditation and then I was like, and I was like, it's the Sanskrit word for bliss. And so I went and I looked, I was like, what's the Sanskrit word for bliss? Turns out there's 14 of them. And Ziva was one of them. And then I looked up Ziva and I saw it's also a Hebrew name that means one who is radiant or kind. And it's a feminine name, which I really liked because this lineage is so masculine. Mm -hmm. And so that just felt like a clear yes. You took a pretty big leap of faith. I know you were the first person, at least in our community, to open up your own studio in New York City, right? Which is not cheap. What was that like? Were you scared? (laughs) Was it touch and go for a while? Well, in the beginning, I was teaching out of my living room and that quickly became unsustainable. Also because my boyfriend was like, get out of here. (laughs) I need to like eat dinner. And then I started teaching at Body by Simone, which is like a workout studio. Mm -hmm. And then she had a full page article in the New York Times come out. And so they Mm -hmm. were just teaching during the day. And then once the Times piece came out, they were like booked all day. So then I got booted out of there. And so I didn't have anywhere to teach. And so I had to get a space. Like I was rendered choiceless. Like a lot of meditation teachers use their own home, but I was living with my boyfriend and he was paying rent. And so it was like, okay. So I had to get a spot. And I think the first space was on 14th street and eighth Avenue. Mm -hmm. And I want to say rent was like somewhere between two and $3,000 a month. So it's not nothing, but I was already teaching maybe somewhere between 10 to 20 people a course, and I would do about two courses a month. And so I was making, you know, anywhere between 20 and 40,000 a month. So it felt like, okay, I mean, grossing that. And so I was like, I can float two to $3,000 a month, but also like a huge, huge gratitude to Jason because he was really like, at that time I was, we started dating under the tenets of me being an unemployed actress. And then I was in school doing meditation teacher training. And so he was really covering like a lot of our living expenses. And I know that some people don't have that. And so I just want to really like acknowledge the belief that he had in me and the investment that he made in me and in Ziva. And so the other thing, like as you mentioned, the course that you did, that also was another pretty big leap of faith because in our tradition, you only teach in person. You never do anything online. Was that tough for you to kind of navigate this idea of taking the knowledge and making it into an online course? Again, maybe this is naivete, but it never felt out of integrity for me. It still doesn't. I spent over a year developing the online course and I was very, very intentional about what I put online and what I didn't. 
because I never wanted to just be disrespectful to the lineage. I never wanted to do things that would ever cause harm to people. I always wanted to be in integrity. And I remember, and again, to credit to Jason, he asked me like point blank, he's like, is your allegiance to this lineage or is your allegiance to helping as many people as possible? Mm-hmm. And that was a very important question. Cause I sat with that. Cause like, again, the pleaser in me was like, I want to make everybody happy. Like I want to be the best. I want to be the golden child in the community. Like that's my mm-hmm. tendency. And when I really sat with it, I was like, my allegiance is to helping as many people as possible. And that felt very clear to me that this is like a no brainer. Like the world is going online, like online meditation courses are going to be a thing. And I felt like I did it in a way where I was not degrading the purity of the tradition. I wasn't putting anything online that wasn't supposed to be online. And so for me, I felt really on the up and up. And it was two or three years that I stayed in the community and had this online course. And it wasn't really until the online course got like big and successful. And then I got booted. (laughs) (laughs) So it didn't feel like an integrity issue to me because if that had been the case, I would have gotten booted earlier. Yeah, I remember when I did my online course and when I wrote my book, Bliss More, I had to ask myself the same question. What's my ultimate purpose? And and I came to the same conclusion. I just want to help as many people as possible. Yeah. And also, I wanted to preserve the experience that I had that I felt was so profound because otherwise I wouldn't be in this position that I'm in now if I hadn't had that very personal experience back in 2003 or whenever it was. Yeah. And the way I saw it then, and and the way I still see it is that the online courses become a beautiful, I mean, this word is now e-commerceified, but it's a funnel. It does in fact meet people where they are. Mm -hmm. You can do it from anywhere. It's more affordable. And then if people have a good experience and it changes their lives for the better, the people who are meant to raise their hands and have worthy inquiry anyway will come. And that, I mean, I just did that this weekend. I taught my first live course since COVID. We had 44 people come from all around the world Mm. from Tel Aviv and Honolulu and Berlin, and they've all already done this online training. Mm -hmm. And so that was such a gift as well to have everyone in the room already have a technique and already have drunk the proverbial Kool-Aid so that we could really deep dive down the rabbit hole instead of having like 40 stressed out New Yorkers being like, prove it lady, you know, which is normally what we're facing when you teach brand new people Mm -hmm. to meditate, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, which is fine. And it's own art, but this was just like a real luxury. You have been one of the most successful meditation teachers in terms of impact. Like you consistently are teaching dozens of people at the same time, whereas most of our colleagues are teaching a handful of people, right? On a busy, a quotes, busy course. Mm-hmm. What do you think it is about your approach or your style, your presence that attracts so many people to your trainings? I think that some of it is just born. You know, I've had something is magnetic about me and it always has been. And so and that sounds arrogant, but like it actually, I'm trying to do the It opposite. is what it is. You know? you know what I mean? Like I, I was born with a certain level of that thing and I've had it since I was a kid and I've worked my ass off in other things. And I'm happy to acknowledge like what's mine and what's God's. And I think that certainly meditation has made that magnetic thing shinier. It makes the presence bigger. It makes the channel clearer but to some degree, it's always been there. So that's part of it. But I think as far as the languaging goes, 
I really pride myself on the ability to straddle science and spirit and also make things entertaining. So I, I try to take my lifetime of being an entertainer and translate that into the course. So I feel like the stuff is serious, but we don't have to be serious about it. So I try to make it really fun and entertaining. And then specifically, strategically, what I did was take the very powerful medicine of meditation and wrap it in the candy coating of, hey, it's going to make you more money and it's going to help you have better sex. And so that's why all my stuff was very performance focused for the past 10 years. Now, I think it's a different, we're in a different world. It's a different phase. I'm certainly a different person. And I think that like the whole world has had its own near-death experience. And when an individual faces a near-death experience, I think that they either wake up or they're willing to take stronger medicine. Like my dad, when he got diagnosed with stage four cancer, was willing to drink a green juice for the first time in his life. Before that, it would have just kept being steak and beer and whatever. So I think that the whole world, because we have faced a near-death experience and because we are dealing with greater fear than we have in our generation, I think we're willing to take more powerful medicine. And this is exciting to me because I feel liberated to let my witch out. You know, I feel liberated to talk about things that I would have likely deemed too woo-woo before COVID. But now I feel like people are, are ready. It's like the more concentrated the fear, the more concentrated we need the medicine to be. Have you noticed any specific skills that you learned or honed on the stage that you feel makes you a more effective meditation teacher? Yeah. I mean, it would be hard to articulate that, but it is the ability to improvise. It is a, a massive simultaneity of awareness. It is comedy. It's like looking, constantly looking for the joke. There was a funny moment at initiation, you know, there's, we did this fruit and flowers ceremony. And so I had a big pile of flowers and it was big because all these people were already meditators. So they brought like just giant bouquets. And then there was this one kind of like very limp, very like flaccid flower. And it was mostly women in the class and two dudes. And this one dude was like, you know, 30, really cute. And I happened to just like wrangle out this like one sort of like limp flaccid flower. And I handed it to him and I was like, don't take it personally. And like the whole room just (laughs) died laughing. And, you know, just, and sometimes I'll uh, anthropomorphize nature or I'll start speaking as if I am nature talking to humans And that can be funny sometimes, but I think it's mostly just being hyper present and saying what is, you know, there's a saying in theater that goes lucky is the actor that gets to articulate what the audience is thinking. And I feel like if you're constantly in that flow where you are in tune with the state of consciousness of the people in the room, then you can almost be in your experience and commenting on it at the same time. And that can be funny. You've been teaching for years now. You've got a book, Stress Less, Accomplish More, that was very successful. You have a children's course, and now you're starting to teach your live trainings again post-pandemic. And one of the themes, I think, of your story is being present to what is, to what you're feeling. And so you're starting to sort of explore other areas as well. Can we talk a little bit about what's coming? 
Yeah. So in the past year and a half, I feel like I've gotten a makeshift or inadvertent PhD in Tantra. One of my best friends is Layla Martin, who is one of the world's greatest Tantra teachers. I am living with Regina Thomashauer, who has a best-selling book called Pussy, a Reclamation. So I'm just sort of steeped in this world of sacred sexuality now. And it feels like, sure, it's fun for me personally, but it feels like nature is handing me a lot of tools and a lot of keys And it feels like it's not just for my own pleasure. I mean, sure. Great. I'm happy to have a nice time, but I feel like really my gift, and this maybe answers your last question. I feel like my greatest gift is the ability to articulate esoteric concepts in a way that people find not only accessible, but also attractive. And it feels like it's high time for that to happen with sacred sexuality. And that's why I was kind of joking earlier about this Tantra for teens, Tantra for teens, but it's much easier to introduce a subject to someone with a clean slate than it is to undo decades of damage. You know, there is no question that like our kids are being educated about sexuality through you porn or TikTok or whatever. And now that I'm seeing sex as such a spiritual practice, that it really is like one of the fastest gateways to God that I've found It's like, wait, where is that conversation? Because all we're telling our children is don't do it. You're going to get STDs. You're going to get pregnant. You're going to get slut shamed. It's dangerous. Don't do it. And that's like the beginning and the end of sex ed. And it's like, oh, that's never worked. Like literally never. (laughs) It's It's not an effective strategy. And yet we keep implementing it. And so I'm very interested in how we can introduce people to the sacred part of this practice. And and my friend Layla said that for thousands of years, ecstasy has been seen as a purifying force. And it's not until very recently that we've made it dirty or shameful or like separated it from God. So while I have zero desire to sit in gymnasiums and talk to 17-year-old boys about masturbation, I have a lot of passion about introducing this stuff to teenagers and even preteens. So I think what I'm going to do is write a movie. And I've already written the treatment for it, and I'm looking for Diablo Cody. So if anybody knows Diablo Cody, I think she's the perfect person to write this. I think she gets the consciousness of a teenage girl and can make it relatable to a universal audience like nothing I've ever seen before. Diablo Cody, she wrote Juno, she wrote Jagged Little Pill. I think she's working on the Madonna biopic right now. So that's the plan there. It's very specific. (laughs) Hyper-specific. That's Mm -hmm. good. Oh, and the other part of the vision, these are big, but I see like 80,000 people in Dallas Cowboy Stadium, November 11th, and it's like lights up, Lizzo. And then dance party, get everybody in their bodies. Regina, Mama Gina comes out, does some swamping, gets people to clear their rage and their grief, and then sprinkle some turn on in to purify those forces. I come out, I MC, do a meditation. Maybe Joe Dispenza talks about the science of manifesting. We all collectively hold this vision for the planet of you know the rainforest being lush, the coral reefs being so colorful, humanity delighting in our unity and our separateness. And then Layla coming out and leading sex magic, which is really a manifestation process. It's using your own 
joy, your own pleasure, your own bliss chemistry, and channeling it through the energy centers of your body. And at the moment of peak pleasure, you send that energy to the visualization, to the vision. And just imagining 80,000 people holding a vision of basically our planet being regenerative, both societally and from an ecological standpoint, feels very exciting to me. I also want to acknowledge you because during the thick of the pandemic, you gave away, I think it was a million dollars worth of your online meditation trainings to people from all walks of life. So it's mostly yeah, like doctors, nurses, and EMTs and respiratory therapists, like the people who are really on the front lines of COVID in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know what I need to do? Actually, I haven't, I'm a little scared too, but I need to just check and see how many of them finished because they were like (laughs) in a battle zone. You know what I mean? Like they were really in a war zone. And so it's like now that hopefully, I mean, I know in some areas it's different, but now that things are not as, at least there's not as many questions. We kind of like know what the enemy is a little bit, but I would like to just re up and be like, Hey, I know we gave you this when things were really intense, but maybe let's finish. You're moving through, or you've moved through a divorce what is that like for a meditation teacher to go through something so, which could be, I guess, really intense for a lot of people? I wish that I could say that it was all sunshine and roses and it fully <laughs> Gwyneth paltrow it and consciously uncoupled. That was certainly my dream. Just like my dream, I had a dream of having like an orgasmic birth at home in a tub. And that is very far from what happened, but, you know, shoot for the moon, they say, and if you fail, you land among the stars, but it was very challenging and forget about being a meditation teacher. It was just like in COVID with a toddler, both working from home, living in the same place. So it was, it was intense and I'm really proud of both of us and I'm so grateful for everything that he has taught me and given me. And now we're like really doing what we can and learning what we can so that we can be the best co-parents possible. But it's gut-wrenching, agonizing, embarrassing, like looking at all the mistakes that I made, all the things that I wish I would have done differently. And if I put myself back in like Emily seven months ago, like she really didn't know any better. You know, it's like, I really was doing the best that I could with the tools that I had. And then a month later, I would have a lot more tools or I would be in a much different emotional state. So I think it's just practicing compassion with myself and with him. And, and I think when you have a kid, it's like it, it makes it harder and easier, harder because there's not spaciousness to fully feel and process necessarily in real time, but easier because it's like, well, we know what the goal is. There is no question mark of he's our number one priority and us like being as loving as we can. It's like we both have the same North star, which is being awesome co-parents. And so then how we get there, we're, we're figuring that out, but that is something I don't take for granted because I think it's possible to go through a divorce and not have the same North star. How is Emily Fletcher thinking about success these days, having gone through all of these really interesting and crazy life experiences? I don't even know really what success (laughs) means anymore, but I can tell you some of my dreams, (laughs) some of my dreams. Now I would like to be in a place what I would consider financially free Basically, that means I'm working when I want to. And so that any stories or stress come off and there's no more shoulds, it is really, truly like devotion, dedication, joy, choice, 
like if money was not an issue, I would probably be putting a lot more time and energy into Ziva kids and we would just be like getting it into schools. So I like the idea and I don't want to get into I'll be happy when syndrome of like, oh, once I have more money, then I'll do the important thing. I want to be careful of that trap, but I would like to have another kid. I would like to teach live in person more. I would love to do retreats more. I'd like to be speaking on ginormous stages, you know, 50, 80,000 person stages. I want to turn Ziva Kids into a TV show. I want to make this Tantra for Teens film, <laughs> which, what do you think about this title? I should not be saying any of this publicly, but whatever. Aroused and confused. Because <laughs> it's about like two teenagers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like learning sacred that. sexuality. You're one of the few people that I've talked to that kind of had a crystal clear vision of which direction your life was going to be going in as a child with the with the theater and all of that. And, and it's pretty clear that you've been able to incorporate all of those skills and experiences and even being able to speak to the anxiety that people feel just in life in general, having gone through that on Broadway and that extreme pressure cooker experience of understudying, you know, several roles at, at the same time. And so I just want to acknowledge you for being true to yourself in every moment, even though it required you to shift or transition your focus into something else. And it mm -hmm. seems like you're still doing that. And you're still coming up with these ideas that can sound crazy, probably even to you. Sometimes when you say them to yourself, I'm going <laughs> to write a movie. I think that's awesome. And you're an inspiration to me and to many, many others. And so, again, I'm honored to be able to call you a friend. I want to thank you for taking time to come onto the show and share probably some parts of the story that maybe haven't been shared before. Because I think it's going to help a lot of people, which, of course, as you stated, is your ultimate purpose. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Like, thank you for all the preparation that you put into this. Mm. Thank you for seeing me and seeing all these different facets of me. And thank you for leading by example. I really look up to you. I'm so oh. inspired by you and not only what you've accomplished, but what you've accomplished, like pretty much on your own. Like I've done all this stuff with a giant team helping me I'm like lights doing the same thing as me. And he's like a team of one. So bravo. I don't know when you sleep or how you get it all done, but it's really impressive. It's all smoke and mirrors. I have, I have helpers. <laughs> <laughs> I have some helpers now at this point. It is a lot, but I'm very clear that I need to leave it all in the field every day. And I feel like that's what keeps the opportunities coming in is just being of service in all ways. So I feel, I see that in you as well. Yeah. And I, you know, you're one of those people, as I said, I just can't get enough of. So I'm looking forward to coming to New York. I know we already talked about, I'm potentially going to be teaching from your space in New York. So that'll be something to look it's warmed forward up to. for you. It feels real good in there. I can imagine. And I'm looking forward to sitting down and breaking some bread and all of that with you as well. So yeah. Thank, thank you. you so much thank for you, having thank me. Thank you for creating this and bravo yes, on all yes. the lives that you've touched with this. Thank you. When is, when is Ziva, the Ziva podcast going to debut? I mean, probably 2022. Mm -hmm. We just got to figure out the format. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to that. You're already doing a weekly thing for your community, right? I did. I did for 18 months during COVID. We did like weekly live streams on Instagram, which was amazing. And we've stopped that just to like birth a bunch of new projects. If someone's listening to this 
and they have some intuitive hits, kind of like the ones you described. What does that feeling actually feel like? How would they know that this is something I should take seriously? Such a good question. I mean, the only advice I have there, because it's almost impossible to tell the difference between fear and inspiration, at least for me. (laughs) But the only advice is that it seems that the inspiration will come a few times, right? It's not just like one and done. Like the vision will come in a few times. And then as a general rule, inspiration is moving you towards something and fear is moving you away. Mm -hmm. Write that book. No, you're too old. Call that guy. No, you're too ugly. It's the first voice. It's the first vision. And if it comes multiple times, it doesn't matter if you understand how or when. It matters if you understand the what and the why. And the more you can just dream into and lean into the what. And sometimes that means free writing or just opening up a blank Google doc and just writing down everything, you know, like that's what I did with the film. I was just like, Oh, this is her name. This is his name. Oh, she's this. Like it just almost writes itself. If you make the spaciousness, there's an amazing quote. I want to share it. It's from Abraham Hicks. It's a good one to end on. You are not the creator of the painting. You are the creator of the moment of being a painter. The true Mm. art is in the feeling of flow. Your moment of connection creates beautiful things that other people want because it represents alignment with source energy. That's Abraham Hicks. I just love that. You're not the creator of the painting. You're the creator of the moment of being a painter. And so I think when you have that inspiration, you're not responsible for birthing the whole thing. You're responsible for getting quiet enough to see what's meant to be birthed through you. Wow. I love that. Beautiful. Thank you for tuning in to my interview with Emily Fletcher. To get more information about Emily, I suggest following her on social media at Ziva Meditation. That's Z-I-V as in Victor A in the word meditation, as well as Emily Stella Fletcher. Her book, Stress Less, Accomplish More, is available everywhere books are sold. And of course, we'll put links to everything in the show notes, which you can find at lightwatkins.com slash tunnel. Speaking of lightwatkins.com, while you're there, you'll see that my recent book, Knowing Where to Look, is available in all versions, including audio, which is read by yours truly, and it also comes with bonus commentary. You can also get information on my Happiness Insiders community, which is where you'll find the 108-day meditation challenge. And I'm pretty certain that being a part of that community will change your life from the inside out. So if you're ready to take your inner work to the next level, Go to thehappinessinsiders.com to get more information and start your free trial. Finally, if you can subscribe and leave a rating or review for this podcast, that would probably be the best way to share these conversations. It only takes 10 seconds to rate it. Just look at your screen right now. Click the name of the podcast. Scroll down past the previous episodes and you'll see the five stars and just click the star on the far right and you've left a rating. So thank you in advance for that and make sure you subscribe so you're notified about the next story from the end of the tunnel. And until then, as always, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart and keep taking those leaps of faith. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you and have a great day.
you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.